Hello and welcome to a special Lancet podcast. April the 25th is World Malaria Day and this week's podcast is dedicated entirely to malaria and the malaria coverage in this week's issue of the Lancet. I'm delighted to be joined on the eve of World Malaria Day by my colleague Pam Daz. Welcome Pam, where are you? I'm at WHO in Geneva. Great. And Pam, what's been happening there? Well, today is the eve of World Malaria Day. It marks a really critical moment in time in the efforts to control malaria globally. The international malaria community has merely two years to meet the 2010 target of delivering effective and affordable protection and treatment to all people at risk of malaria. As called for by the uh, United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, the theme of this year's World Malaria Day is counting malaria out, a kind of countdown to controlling malaria globally. Rollback Malaria Partnership, which is uh, a big group of different players, which include WHO, is kicking off a campaign to engage partners in a comprehensive effort to actually count and quantify the progress and impact of the fight against malaria. So it's all quite exciting. Um, it really feels like it's malaria's moment right now, um, given that uh, in previous years there's been very little interest in malaria. Suddenly there's more money at the table, there's more players, there's more advocacy, and there's really a general feeling that uh, the goal of controlling malaria and a much longer term goal of uh, eliminating malaria is very much something we could all strive for. So today was a press conference to mark World Malaria Day, and that included a number of uh, the key players in the malaria community. So first of all, we heard from UNICEF, who, together with the Rollback Malaria and the Global Fund, are releasing a report today, which is an update of the 2007 figures on the progress in coverage of insecticide-treated bed nets. And what they've shown is that since 2004, insecticide-treated bed net production uh, has grown from 30 billion to 100 billion nets, which seems quite substantial, but, but producing nets is one thing, actual usage is another. And though they show that there has been an increase in usage, so in 2000 the usage was as low as 2%, and in 2006 that's risen to 20%, it does show we're still very far off from the 2010 target, so there needs to be a lot more done on access and coverage. The next was Sir Richard Feacham, who uh, gave a few minutes on uh, malaria elimination. He chairs the Malaria Elimination Group, as you know, and talks about the launch of uh, his two documents, which you have spoken to him about already. That's right. And uh, after this discussion with Pam, you can hear a 15-minute interview between myself and Professor Richard Feacham about malaria elimination. Thanks, Pam. Carry on. What else was there? What was very interesting was two countries. There were two heads of national malaria programs, both at this press conference, who were showcasing the success of uh, malaria control in their countries. One was Sri Lanka. Now, Sri Lanka is a very interesting situation, given the current conflict that is happening there right now. And over the, the many years, the displacement of people, you can imagine how difficult uh, it is to, um, to control malaria uh, in such a place uh, which is not static and is constantly changing. But impressively, uh, the program manager presented some results which showed that from 250,000 cases of malaria, which is their sort of start-off baseline, 
over 10 years, that has been reduced to only 250 cases right now. I mean, that, that's quite remarkable. And that's due to the credit of the commitment of the government, um, despite the ongoing com conflicts and displacement. Um, and that's due to um, emphasizing long-standing treatments and ensuring that uh, coverage of insecticide-treated bed nets has been maintained. Um, basically, they've not had a single death of malaria in the last three years. Any news, Pam, about drug developments or vaccine developments? Well, yes. Now, that's an interesting... Uh, there was Chris Henschel from MMV, the Malaria uh, for Medicines Venture, which was set up particularly for that, uh, to develop new drugs. As you know, the parasite, the malaria parasite, is a, is a difficult organism to treat and um, has outwitted uh, researchers for, for, for decades. Chris Henschel reflected back on uh, the number of treatments that were distributed and in 2008 there were 57 million treatments for malaria that were distributed. Now that's the equivalent of 20 jumbo jets of drugs and has saved approximately half a million lives. Now that's all very good but still a lot more needs to be done and new drugs are desperately needed uh, not only to kill the parasite but also the reservoir. So Chris um, referred to the pipeline, which um, he says has 50 very significant R&D products. He didn't really go into any details of any of the products in particular, but uh, he said it was very encouraging that, uh, that they have um, products at this stage, which they're going to take on for further development. And similarly, uh, there was Joe Cohen from GSK. As you know, GSK are the developers of the RTS vaccine, which uh, we've published in the Lancet and more recently in NEJM, two studies um, showing uh, efficacy in, in field trials. The phase three trial is about to start in a few weeks and the first results are expected in 2011 with additional data coming out over the following years. And so the hope is that uh, if these phase three trials uh, replicate the um, same kind of efficacy shown in the phase two trials that uh, the vaccine is going to be an incredibly powerful tool in our future response to malaria. Pam, can you update us about uh, the funding situation for uh, global malaria plans? At the uh, press conference, Rifat Atun from the Global Fund, who are perhaps one of the major funders um, for malaria control efforts, spoke about the funding generally uh, for malaria. What was quite um, interesting was um, the increase in funding from rounds seven to eight. So in round seven, there was $400 million devoted to malaria. And in round eight, that rose to $1.6 billion. And now that is more than for HIV and TB. And that's never happened in the whole time that the Global Fund has been running. So it really shows you that the quality of um, malaria applications for grants is obviously a lot more stronger. Countries are really working very closely to ensure progress, given that the money is now available. So it really does show that there is an opportunity to scaling up and shrinking that uh, the malaria map from control to elimination. Thanks very much Pam and, and so you, in summary you would say plenty of hard work still to be done and a real problem in the highly endemic areas still where we need more tools but generally quite an optimistic picture do you think for malaria at the moment? I think so. I think, as you said, in various places, there's a real opportunity here to, uh, to reach these targets. And in other countries, yes, 
much more effort. I think it's clear that uh, the malaria community as a whole, they'll really need to push themselves outside their comfort zones because this is going to be a very long journey. I think uh, Richard Featham has mentioned a couple of times about we're looking at elimination 2050 and the minimum. Having a common goal is, is, is really good, but as time goes on, we are going to have to focus on the detail as each, each individual country will need to be tailored in terms of malaria control. It isn't one size fits all. Um, and what we mustn't set ourselves up for is failure. And we mustn't promise what we can't deliver. So this is kind of a cautious note to the malaria community as there has been donor fatigue in the past. And we don't really want to see that again. And we don't want to undo all the good we're doing right now. Thanks very much, Pam. And earlier I spoke to Professor Sir Richard Feacham, from, who's director of the Global Health Group at the University of California, San Francisco. He's written a comment in the current issue of The Lancet. And I began by asking him to comment about how the malaria community has made remarkable progress in the past two years, which is in the first line of his comment. There has been remarkable progress um, in the world of malaria in the last five years, and particularly in the last two years, which is what we point out in the commentary. I would summarize that by saying that the levels of finance uh, available to fund uh, malaria work um, in endemic countries um, has increased enormously. Uh, driven primarily by the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and, mal and malaria, but also coming from other sources, most notably the President's Malaria Initiative of the United States. So that's one aspect, a big increase in, in funding for malaria. Secondly, a big increase in political commitment and the awareness of politicians and parliamentarians uh, around the world, north and south, about the importance of malaria and the fact that we have the tools to very significantly reduce the burden of malaria in um, affected communities. And thirdly, very substantial progress in actually scaling up programs and doing what needs to be done. And that has led to some remarkable progress in, in reducing morbidity and mortality from malaria in a number of heavily in, uh, affected countries. Can you give an example of where implementation has already made a difference? In quite a number of places. We always tend to rightly focus attention on the malaria heartland in tropical Africa, where the burden of, of child death and illness is the greatest. And in that part of the world, one would want to single out, for example, Ethiopia, Rwanda, and Zambia, all of whom have seen very substantial progress in reducing malaria morbidity and mortality and reducing the pressure that malaria applies uh, to the health system as measured by you know, the number of outpatients and inpatients in clinics and hospitals who are there because of malaria. But beyond those malaria heartland countries, African malaria heartland countries, there is significant progress um, all around the world. The Philippines continues to make good progress towards malaria elimination. So does China. The four most southerly countries in Africa have uh, declared a malaria elimination goal by 2015 and have uh, begun to very actively scale up their programs to achieve that. 
There is significant further progress in Latin America. So one can go well beyond Africa to see good progress being made. In terms of the rollback malaria strategy, just briefly, there are three prongs to it, aren't there, which you cover in the commentary. And let's just be clear about the E word here. We're talking about E for elimination, not eradication. Well, let me link the two E words. And just to remind ourselves that a few years ago, we weren't using either of the two E words. In fact, they were regarded as naughty words and and couldn't be used in polite company. But now we use the two E words all the time. Eradication, of course, means the end of malaria, the end of human malaria globally. In other words, doing for, for malaria what we did for smallpox several decades ago. And That's a very long-term goal. So that goal of eradication, which is a goal that I personally subscribe to, is to be achieved in 2050 or 2060. It is several decades away. The question is, how do we get there? And the three-part strategy that you referred to is a strategy from getting from a malarious world to a non-malarious world. And it is, in a nutshell, part one, um, aggressive control Um, activities in the malaria heartland to greatly reduce the burden of disease where it is greatest. Part two is progressive elimination from the endemic margins inwards, which we call shrinking the malaria map. I'll come back to that. And part three is research, which is really been scaled up recently, mainly as a result of funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and is an incredibly important part of this because we need better drugs, diagnostics, insecticides. We need a first vaccine. We need a second vaccine. We need a third vaccine, etc. So the research effort is the critical third part. Coming back to part two of the strategy, which has been relatively neglected, this is the e-word that we're using a lot in our commentary in today's Lancet. This is the elimination word by which we mean local eradication. We mean the cessation of transmission in a defined geographical area, typically a country. So eradication is from the globe. Elimination, which by the way, we used to call eradication. When the United States got rid of malaria in 1952, it announced malaria has been eradicated. Today, the announcement would be malaria has been eliminated because the word elimination is now used to mean getting rid of malaria, eradicating it from a defined geography, from a defined uh, geographical area, typically a country. And what it means in practice is the ending of all local transmission so that in that country, having eliminated, the only malaria cases are then imported cases. There are no locally transmitted cases. Also in this week's issue of The Lancet, um, Bob Snow, another eminent uh, malaria expert, um, is interviewed by my colleague Pam Daz in a profile. In Africa, he thinks it is impossible to achieve elimination at reasonable cost in the foreseeable future. But what we can achieve is low, stable endemic control, which is to bring down parasite levels to very low levels. Do you agree with that line? I largely agree with it. I mean, I think what Bob is doing is conflating part one and two of the strategy, and we need to keep them separate. Bob's point that we can't eliminate in the near or medium term from the whole of Africa absolutely right. We need new tools to do that. We don't have the technologies and the techniques today to make Africa malaria-free. 
And so in the foreseeable future, it depends what we mean by foreseeable. I think we can do it by 2050, 2060. I think Bob thinks that as well. But can we do it by 2020 or 2030? No, I don't think we can. So we agree. What we can do is two things. We can apply part one of the strategy, aggressive control, and bring down malaria to low levels of transmission and endemicity in, in all of Africa if we try hard enough and do the right things. But we can also at the same time begin to eliminate country by country from the endemic margins moving inwards. And let me illustrate that from Southern Africa. Four Southern African countries two years ago, before the Bill and Melinda Gates announcements, announced their national goals and their sub-regional goals of eliminating malaria in their countries by 2015. And those are Namibia, South Africa, Botswana, and Swaziland. So those four most southerly malarious countries in Africa have announced um, through their own policy deliberations and their own technical discussions, they have announced an elimination goal by 2015. Similarly, in, in the far north of Africa, a number of countries have already elim eliminated and others are working to, to achieve that. So we are shrinking the map. An elimination is a feasible goal for those fortunate countries on the margin of the endemic who have less malaria, um, sometimes unstable malaria, and who already have significant parts of their country malaria-free, which is the case for Namibia, Swaziland, South Africa, and Botswana. And moving on to initiatives being launched for this year's World Malaria Day at the World Health Organization in Geneva, which is where you are, there are two things I see that are being launched. One is, if you like, a prospectus about uh, elimination, and another document is, is, is detailing more about the shrinking of the malaria map. Do you want to talk about the prospectus first? What's, what sort of document is it? It's quite, an, it's quite a, a quaint term, isn't it, to give a, a report, a prospectus? Well, let me quickly give the background. The Global Health Group, which I direct at the University of California in San Francisco, with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and from ExxonMobil, set up an international body called the Malaria Elimination Group, MEG, M-E-G. And that group has now been working for a little over a year and the first two products of MEG are being launched in Geneva today. The first product is a guide for policymakers. Both documents are called Shrinking the Malaria Map. The first document is subtitled A Guide for Policymakers. And the second document is subtitled A Prospectus on Malaria Elimination. And the first one is essentially a shorter policy-orientated digest of where we are with malaria elimination today, what are the issues? What are the reasons why you would not want to try to do it? What are the reasons why you might want to try to do it? Who is doing it? What have been some of the successes and failures? All described at a fairly high level and briefly for the busy policymaker, either in the country or in the donor organization or scientific organization who are considering assisting the country or advising the country on elimination. The second document, the prospectus, has 10 chapters, each with authors, many of whom are leading experts from around the world in malaria. It has a lot more detail in it. And if you like, the prospectus is for the investor who is really grappling with some um, very detailed questions of, is this the right time to move from control to elimination? If I do that and if I make those investments, what am I taking on? Again, what are the reasons why I might want to do that and what are the reasons why I might not want to do that? It's important to give countries that have embarked on elimination 
as, as much guidance as we can, but it's also important for countries that are talking about elimination where that may be premature, as, as Bob has indicated is the case in some countries, guidance on why it's premature and the reason to, uh, for the time being, focus on control rather than elimination. Thank you. And presumably, therefore, it gives very specific details about, about individual countries because different countries may have very unique malaria situations. It's a very good point. The, the two documents necessarily try to summarize cross-cutting information of relevance to a number of countries but they also draw on quite a number of country examples. And the documents make the point that these are decisions country by country, and each country's economic situation, health systems, degree of strength, financial potential, and epidemiology and ecology, each country is in a different place, has a different circumstance. So the detailed discussion about can I go for elimination now, and if so, exactly how do I do it? This is a country-by-country discussion, but we're trying to draw out some general lessons. I've just come from the third meeting of the Malaria Elimination Group, which closed yesterday afternoon, and one of the conclusions of that meeting is that the next frontier for work on elimination is much more detailed country-by-country work, case studies, operational research, and other kinds of evidence gathering, which go much more into the detail and address the point that you made, that every country's circumstances are uh, somewhat different. Returning to your comment in The Lancet, which, uh, as I said at the outset, it, I think is, is, is a relatively optimistic picture, which is a very encouraging picture for malaria. don't want to put a dampener on it at all, but of course, at the moment, everyone's talking about money and global recessions and credit crunches. What about funding into the malaria community? Have we accounted for the fact that global funding for malaria initiatives may well obviously reduce over the next year or so and that could really hamper the broader strategic aims of the Rollback Malaria campaign? We must account for that possibility. You're absolutely right. Behind the scenes, there are detailed discussions going on to Uh, try to make our our global and regional and national plans robust against a number of eventualities. Um, Now, while we hope that both domestic and international funding for malaria will stay up and will not decline, and some countries have made commitments to that effect, we have to also be ready for for a different scenario where because of the the depth and breadth of the international recession, both domestic resources for the malaria and international resources for malaria do indeed decline. I mean, that may well happen, and we need to be ready for it, even if it's not what we hope for and not what we're advocating for. And I think this does require some very uh, clear-headed thinking about spending money smarter and prioritizing more effectively. I think it's going to put us in a period of two or three years, hopefully not longer, where in a way there's an opportunity because of the pressure on on funding to think very, very precisely and rigorously about the best use of the next dollar. In other words, spending smarter. And also, I suspect, to some degree, spending in a more prioritized way. We do have a tendency in malaria to behave as if all countries can move forward at the same speed and make the same kind of progress. That is never true, and and we know it's not true, even if we don't like to say so in some of these public meetings. 
And I think more kind of light and shade uh, amongst countries and amongst priorities so that we can put the money where there will be significant, demonstrable, measurable wins where we can really find progress in the short term despite the recession, measure that progress, make it well known, and therefore maintain momentum on the back of that good progress. The malaria fields, like, like other fields in global health, need that. They need those successes, those well-measured and universally acclaimed successes in order to maintain political commitment and also in order to maintain uh, funding both nationally and internationally. And I suspect we're going to move into a phase where there is more focus on uh, places and activities where we can have a big win relatively quickly. Professor, Dr. Sir Richard Feacham, thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to Sir Richard Feacham and to my colleague Pam Daz for contributing to this special World Malaria Day podcast for The Lancet. Thanks very much for listening. See you next week.